Hello, my name is Steve Brown, and I'm the worship leader at Vintage Faith Church. At Vintage Faith, we believe the Word of God is what changes and transforms a person. We hope you enjoy the next 30 to 40 minute sermon of the Word of God being proclaimed and explained. Enjoy the message. Hi, good morning. Trust in Jesus. What more needs to be said? I think we're done here. Okay, so we are still in the uh, book of Genesis. I'm reading from chapter 6, verses 11 to 22. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And every living thing of all flesh you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds, according to their kinds, and of the animals, according to their kinds, of every creeping thing on the ground, according to its kind, two of every sort shall come in to you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and stored up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this, he did all that God commanded him. Good morning. We, uh, at the end of service, will be doing communion, so make sure you have one of the communion cups. And if I think probably at this point we've all used them. It's got a layer on top, peel back at the piece of bread, and then underneath that is another layer with the, with the juice. So we'll be doing that at the end of service. A few announcements uh, Bible study is on Wednesday night. Uh, we're in the covenants, and we will be looking at the covenant with Moses or the Sinai covenant or the covenant with Israel, whatever you want to call it. That will start um, this Wednesday. And Tuesday night, we, uh, like I announced last week, we're going to have a meeting. Uh, Julie from the Pro-Life Training Center is going to speak with us. Anyone that wants to hear more about a pro-life ministry, um, we're, we got a group of people here that are praying about that. We've been meeting, getting together, and just thinking, hey, what, what can Vintage Faith do to get in this fight for the unborn? So if that's something that interests you, that is this Tuesday night at 7 o'clock, um, and it's Julie from the Pro-Life Training Center. If you have any questions about that, before you come, you can ask Dave Pettit. He's been in contact um, with her. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, Lord, we just thank you, as Steve said, that we are still 
able to meet, that we are still gathering as your people. For thousands of years, your people have gathered together to worship you, to sing praise to you, to, to hear your word read and to hear your word preached, to take communion. And Lord, we, we get to do that. Help us to see that for what it is. We thank you for that. And today, as we look at the story of the flood in Genesis, help us to, to come to, to grips with something that, that we all bristle against in some way. That is judgment. Help us to see that as a good thing, as a needed thing. Lord, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. So my, my kids are all a, a little bit older now. When they were younger, we had children's Bibles and, and we would read them stories in scripture from those children's Bibles. And one of the things that always used to kind of get to me was the story of the flood. Because if you look at most children's Bibles, when you look at the story of the flood and the story of Noah, there's a lot of cute little pictures and the water, he looks like, you know, the boat looks like it's almost having fun in the water. And it, it really misses the essence of what happens or what happened in the flood in Genesis six through nine. The flood is anything but cute. Imagine for a moment, terrified parents, terrified children, waters rising, screaming. At some point, there were probably people clawing to get into the boat. This is a horrific scene. It's anything but cute. And we need to look at this as, as believers because this is an aspect of our worldview. We're in Genesis and we're talking about the world and how we view it differently. And one of the aspects of a Christian's worldview is there is a creator, God. He did make things with a purpose. There is a moral code. And when that moral code is violated, there are consequences. And eventually, judgment. This is part of our worldview. We saw last week in, in chapter 5 that God's promise was true and Satan is a liar because we hearken back to the garden when Satan said, oh, if you eat of it, you won't die. And then we read in chapter 5, just the roll call of death and he died and he lived and he had a son and he died and he died and they died and they died. Satan is a liar. God speaks truth. And we looked at how Lamech had this hope. Something spoke to Lamech in a way when Noah was born 
He knew something was different about Noah. We read that when Noah was born, Lamech said, is, is he the one? Is he the, the offspring of Eve who's going to finally roll back this terrible curse and this death and all the toil? Is he the one? Is Noah the one? So we pick up our story today in Genesis 6. I'm going to weave through four chapters of the flood. I was kind of working through as I was preparing in, in, over the last month of what am I going to do on the story of the flood? Am I going to preach one sermon for each chapter? Am I going to spread it out? And, and I've decided I'm going to condense it in one. Don't worry, we'll be out on time. It's not going to be condensed in one, three hours long, but it's going to be condensed in one. So we're going to look at Genesis 6, Genesis 7, 8, and 9. All right, Genesis 6, 8. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So in the midst of this, this scene that we're going to read, in, in this horrible judgment, we have grace. We have God still true to his promise. I'm going to defeat the serpent through a son, through a seed of the woman, a seed of Eve, Eve or an offspring of Eve. And Noah is in that line. Noah found favor, grace in the eyes of of the Lord. And the story continues in, in 6, 11 through 14. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. So at this point in, in the story, in our, our narrative, the earth is not filled with image bearers subduing and ruling and representing God and showing the world what God is like. Instead, it's filled with violence and corruption. One sin in the garden, and we have, years later, total corruption. If you want to look into what possibly is happening in the days of Noah, you, you can look at the story of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19. That's going to give you a little picture of what it probably was like in the whole world at Noah's time. That's Genesis 19, if, if you're taking notes. But God raises up this man, Noah, and his family. At 2 Peter 2.5, Peter says this of Noah, If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So Peter calls Noah a herald, 
And if you remember from last week, we talked about that word herald. It, it, it means to preach, to proclaim. And we talked about it in the sense of we're Christians. We have a message of good news. We herald it. Yes, part of our faith is, hey, because of this message, we live like this. The world thinks that's our whole message. No, our message is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has come and will come again to roll back all the misery that we all feel and know. And we proclaim that, we herald that, and that's what Noah was. He was a herald of righteousness. We don't know exactly what Noah's preaching, but he probably was preaching something like, I'm building this boat in the middle of the desert. God is going to judge you for these sins. Come, repent, and come. That's probably something like the message Noah was preaching. But we know, Martin Lloyd-Jones says this about Noah, we know that it wasn't received. The people ridiculed Noah. God raised him up and made him a preacher of righteousness. He revealed his program to him. Noah believed it and began building his ark. And the people said, the man's mad. What's he talking about a flood for? He's been saying it for years. Think about that. Noah was building this ark for years. It had to take effort, time, money. The whole world around him saw it. What is this guy doing? But God had spoke to Noah. It's really nothing new under the sun. God's people have always been mocked. When you read the Psalms, you'll see this. The people of God are mocked. They're, they're constantly mocked. But Noah was called to build this ark in the middle of the desert. It wouldn't have made sense to him, but he trusted God. He believed God. When I was in my, my late 30s, early, mid to, to late 30s, I began sensing that God was calling me into ministry. And I was also climbing the corporate ladder at the same time. I, I was being promoted, and at some point, I, I turned down a pretty big promotion, and everyone around me within the company and even friends and family couldn't understand it. And even at times, I would question myself, like, what, what am I doing? This doesn't make sense. And I remember I would, I would meet with friends, and, and they were in their mid-30s, and, and, you know, they're all climbing the ladder. And these are friends and from college, or I, I may have known them for a, a large portion of my life. And they would look at me like, what are you doing? You're, you're, I'm escalating up the ladder. You're, like, walking down it. What are you doing? And I would talk about ministry, and I, I know they were thinking, for, for church? Really? You, you would give that up? For church, and it, and it didn't make sense. In Psalm 89:50, the psalmist says, "Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked, and how I bear in my heart the insults of all the many nations. 
There is something to being one of God's people where you're just not going to be accepted by the world. In fact, they're going to think you're crazy. If you really think about the story that we proclaim and we believe, although it makes all the reason, rational sense in our minds and our hearts because we know God to the outside world, it seems like a fairy tale. And you may be mocked for that, and that's okay. That's okay. Noah was mocked. So when we look back through where we've been in Genesis, chapter 1 and 2, Adam and Eve are living in absolute paradise. There is no death. There is no toil. There is no anxiety. There is no fear. They're walking with God. They're, li- they're naked and not ashamed. Chapter 3, we have the sin, the sin, the tree, fall, shame and guilt, exile out of paradise. Right away in chapter 4, we have the first murder, Cain, Abel. Death and toil last week. And now things are just utterly corrupt. The entire world is corrupt. And God's patience finally runs out. Genesis 7, 11 to 12, Moses says, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of heaven were opened and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. So think back to the beginning in Genesis 1. In fact, in, in Genesis 1, 6 to 7, God separates the waters above from the waters below. Something is going on where there's just the earth is a mass of water. We see the Spirit hovering over water in the beginning. It's all water and it's called chaos. But then we see how God separates the chaos, the, the, the water above from the water below, and then dry land eventually appears. He's creating order out of chaos, and now we have the exact opposite happening. This is a decreation story. The world is falling in on itself. The waters of chaos that were separated are now coming back. Moses means for us to see this and read this as a story of decreation. Not only did one disobedient act in the garden exile Adam and Eve out of paradise, but it slowly led to an earth that was so corrupt that God had to say, enough we rest, let's restart this thing. It's, it's over. Sin multiplies as it always does. It, it goes from something that we might think is kind of fun and, and cute and, and it has levels and it, it ends up denigrating. Um, it always unravels order in our lives. Sin always unravels order in our lives. 
Rosaria Butterfield is an author, and she's written a few books about her conversion. She actually was a professor here in Syracuse University and, and a big part of the LGBTQT movement. She identified as a lesbian and uh, came to faith in Syracuse in and, 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 and a church in, in the city years ago, and she wrote a book about it and about her conversion, about repentance from that lifestyle. But she talks about sexual sin in particular, but this is true of all sin. And she says, we often bring it into our home. And she likens it to like a cute baby little tiger. It's cute, right? My kids have said for years, oh, I'd love a little cheetah or a tiger. Like they're just so cute or a little lion. And she likens that to to our sin in the beginning. And we've got it on a leash and we're playing with it and it's fun and it's all manageable. At least we think we can manage it. And then one day we're surprised when that tiger is eating us alive. It becomes full grown. It breaks the leash. That's how sin works. That's the story of Adam and Eve in the garden all the way up until we see now with with the flood. Sin has just gripped every human being. It's permeated throughout the whole world. The insidious nature of sin, insidious just meaning it's a proceeding, gradual darkening. Sin is insidious. It becomes worse. We need as Christians to to kill it, to, to, the, the Christian word would be mortify sin. For sure we have grace in Christ, but sin still has devastating consequences. Rosaria says of sin, sometimes sin lurks and festers for decades, deceiving the sinner that he really has it all under control until it unleashes itself on everything you built, cherished, and loved. When we think about the story of Noah and God's judgment, we should take it as a warning in our own lives. A warning for whatever we're entertaining in our lives, no matter how small, whatever we're kind of playing with and we think it's cute and we think this isn't going to get worse, we need to take the story of the flood as a warning. In fact, James says this about the nature of sin. He says, when, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Your frustration turns into anger. At that point, you either bury it and and just suppress it, or maybe you act in anger. You bury it, and that burying of the anger just turns to bitterness. Or you act on it and you vent your anger and then you've got destruction all around you and your family with your friends at at work. Lust, 
I'm going to view a little pornography. Then maybe it's a lack of intimacy with your wife. Then maybe it's full-blown adultery. That's how sin works. It starts small, and the more you give it, it grows. So God, he loses, his, his patience runs out. Genesis 7, to 24. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted every living thing that was on the face of the ground, blotted out every living thing. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, they were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left. And those who were in with him in the ark, and the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. This is a horrible scene. It's a horrible scene of judgment. And we live in a world today that, that's going to look at this and it's going to say, how dare you even talk about that, that you believe in a God who judges, how dare you? But at the same time, we live in a world that's obsessed with justice. We have the whole social justice movement going on. Everything is, it, the, the world is looking to rectify wrongs. Social media, when, when anybody in this world today that's in any kind of public domain messes up, social media, the mob goes crazy. They should pay for that, is what the world says. The world wants justice. The world loves justice. And at the same time, the world is saying, just don't judge me. I can judge you, but don't judge me. And we as Christians know that we do have a judge, and it's not us. It's God. And he's a just judge. And he's a righteous judge. He's a fair judge. But people may say, hey, what, what you're preaching, what you guys believe, vintage faith, this is dangerous. This is dangerous for the world. You're talking about judgment. You're talking about wrath. That's what's wrong with the world. But I would submit to you and, and, and to someone that would say that is pure love, real love requires wrath. You can't have real love without wrath and consequence and judgment. Every parent in this room knows that is true. If someone ever tried to do something to your children, you're not gonna stand there and say, well, go ahead, you broke into my home. I guess you can take my kid. No, that would be sinful. The righteous thing to do is to protect your family. Love requires wrath. In fact, the Apostle Paul says, love what is good, hate what is evil. There's a contemporary Christian theologian who, who I read fairly often. His name is Miroslav Volf, and he's from Croatia. 
And he, he's wrote a lot about how the, the West, and in particular, American Christianity, has tried to do away with this God of wrath. That we've tried to say, no, this is a God that's all about love. Forget about his wrath. I don't want to hear about his wrath. That doesn't make me feel good. I want to hear about his love. And he's written a, a lot about this. And he, he's actually written well in war-torn countries. He's been there and watched some really crazy things happen. And he's talking about this thesis that, that he has. He says, imagine there are people whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit, Soon you would discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of a thesis that human nonviolence should correspond to God's refusal to judge. In a scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, that idea will invariably die. So what Wolf is saying is, there's people out there that are saying that God's wrath, if you're preaching the wrath of God and God's judgment, you are actually causing more of the problem. You're causing war. You're causing this. You're, you're putting a doctrine out there that just shouldn't be out there. And what he's saying is, that's the only reason why there's not complete vengeance for everyone in this world who is wronged. Because we can say, he's the judge. He's going to have vengeance. I don't have to get vengeance. Everything that's done wrong, God will one day make right. That's what Wolf is saying. He's saying, you want a God of wrath. You want a God of wrath. Otherwise, you have a God that's just letting all this evil in the world compound it and just keep happening and keep happening and keep happening. And then what? One day he's just going to look the other way. Okay, that's fine. No, we all want justice. We all want justice. The problem that we have is where's the line? But I would ask you this morning, does your picture of Christ, God the Father and his God the Spirit, does your picture of God include his justice and wrath? or just love. If it doesn't include his wrath and anger towards sin, do you really want to worship that God? A God who just looks the other way to all the injustice in the world. Paul says in, in Romans 2, He says, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God's patience, his kindness, his grace, it's meant to lead us to repentance. And what Paul's saying here is you can presume on that, you can kind of say, well, yeah, he's, he's graceful, he's kind, he's, he's patient, I'm going to just live any way I want. 
And the Bible on repeat is going to say, no, there's consequence for sin. Genesis 8.1, our story moves on. We've got this horrible scene. Every human being, man, woman, child, wrap your mind around that, babies, man, woman, child, dead. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts, of the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. So Genesis 6 and 7, we have all of creation falling in on each other, falling in on itself. You've got the waters that God once separated in the early chapters of Genesis, crashing in and everything dying, the, the life that God gave man snuffed out. But now we have a wind. This word for wind is the same word that's used for spirit in Genesis 1. It's ruach. We have a wind blowing over the earth, again, pushing the waters back. This is another picture of creation. And if you read all four chapters together of the story of the flood, you're going to see it's a, it's a decreation story and then it's a recreation story, a lot of the same language. Genesis 9.1, here's some of that language. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. What does that sound like? Genesis 1. God has started over with Noah. Lamech was indeed feeling something. This, this boy, Noah, there's something special about him. Is he the one? Is he the seed of the woman, the offspring of Eve? Is he the one that's going to roll the curse back? He felt something. Lamech was on to something. God didn't use Noah to bring relief, though. God used Noah to bring the people of God through the waters of judgment. And that people at this time was one family. Genesis 9, the narrative continues three to four. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood. So we have a significant change here after the flood. God is now telling Noah, you can eat meat, you can eat animals. Your survival now, Noah, is now going to be tied to the shedding of blood. In fact, when Noah gets off the boat, the first thing he does is a sacrifice. That's pointing forward. This is pointing forward. You could survive on plants. Now you need something to die for you to survive. Have you ever considered in, in the physical realm that just about everything that you eat that keeps you alive has, has to die? Plants, animals, and I'm sure there, there might be a workaround, and, and you can come up to me after. We can talk about it. But uh, to, to, to really be healthy, our survival in the physical realm is tied 
to something else having to die to keep us alive. We are beings who are contingent. Contingent just means we are not self-reliant. We rely on God to keep us alive. God is the only non-contingent being in the universe. He relies on nothing. But this theme of sacrifice and innocent blood dying as a payment just picks up steam in the Bible. This is one of the the themes that, that starts in Genesis and it just gets bigger and bigger with each book that you read. Leviticus is all about, hey, if you're going to approach a holy God as a sinful man or woman, you need to approach with a sacrifice. Something innocent needs to die before you can approach the Lord. In fact, Leviticus 17.11, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. We see this with the story of Noah, And we see this with the story of Israel. Something innocent needs to die for us to live. All right, the narrative continues. The flood has now subsided, and Noah is in the garden. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall be he be to his brothers. What's happening here, and, no, and Moses, who wrote Genesis, is doing this on purpose. This is a new start. What do we have? We have Noah in a garden, a vineyard, eating, in this case, eating, drinking, a forbidden fruit. He gets drunk. So we have a, a sin again. He's naked and ashamed, just like Adam and Eve were naked and ashamed. Now we have Noah. He just brought the, God's people through the waters of judgment, and right away, he's failed just like Adam has failed. His nakedness being covered again. In, in Genesis 1, God is covering the nakedness of Adam and Eve. Now here we have the sons of Noah covering his nakedness. And we have a curse, just like in Genesis. Cursed be Canaan, the son of Ham. We have a retelling of Genesis 3 right here in Genesis 9. It's a new beginning, and right from the beginning, it's off to the wrong start. In fact, even if you look at the curse, the curse is on Canaan, the son of Ham, who were Israel's enemies when they took the promised land? Canaanites. The Canaanites. So Moses is setting us up for the story that's coming. Cursed be Canaan.
Noah is not the one to bring relief. We see it right here. Noah has, has failed. But God does make a covenant with Noah. And this covenant is, is pointing towards our true hope. In Genesis 9, 13 to 15, he says, I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant. That is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. God sets a bow, and we, we call it a rainbow, but he sets a bow in the clouds. And this bow, at that time, in this place, was the premier weapon of war. The bow was a weapon of war. And we have it in the sky, and it's not pointed down at humanity, it's pointed up at God. God's judgment is pointed at God himself. The rainbow is God's covenant with, with Noah and all living creatures that he will not destroy the earth in judgment again by flood. But that sign of the covenant is actually pointing to something greater why is it pointing at God? Why is the weapon of war and the, the, the judgment pointing at God? Jesus says in Matthew, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Jesus is saying that that flood, this story that we're reading, this judgment on the whole earth, is actually, it actually happened, but it's actually pointing to something bigger. That at the end of days, there will be a judgment on all people, on all humanity. And we don't want to hear that. That bristles against our modern sensibilities. What do you mean judgment? What do you mean? I've been told since I was a kid that I'm great. But it's not all bad news. Because that bow is pointed up at God. That's looking 
forward to the cross and saying, indeed, the judgment has been meted out. It's been meted out on Jesus Christ on the cross. God himself has taken the punishment if you trust in him. The cross is kind of like the ark. Noah was preaching to the world around him and a preacher of righteousness, no doubt he's saying, get on the boat. I know this God, this God is not messing around. Get on the boat. And that's what Jesus did when he came. Come to me. I have the words of eternal life. Come to me. Lloyd-Jones says this. What God says is this. Our sinfulness deserves the very same punishment that he meted out to those people in the flood and will mete out at the end of the world. There's just one way of escape, to believe that, to acknowledge it, to stop defending yourself, Stop trying to argue against it with your science or your knowledge or anything else. To believe that what the word of God says about yourself, you are a sinner. To confess and acknowledge it, to repent before God. Then believe him when he tells you he has prepared the ark. That he sent. His only begotten son to bear your sins and punishment. That's the only way of escape. There's a judgment coming, and there's one way of escape. Just like we've been talking, there's one way back into paradise. There's one way. It's only through the cross, through trusting in what Jesus did on the cross. We're going to take communion together, and we're going to remember that together. And this has been called, it is called the Lord's Supper. And the church has been, had the Lord's Supper at the the center of, of their meeting ever since the church was born. The Lord's Supper is a critical part of worship. It looks back across redemptive history. It looks, goes all the way back. Jesus ties it to the Passover. And it looks at the cross. And it also looks forward to the day when Jesus Christ is coming to judge and for those who know him to usher in the new heavens and the new earth and eternal life. Paul says, for as often as you eat and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So it's looking back and looking forward. The prophet Isaiah says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Let's eat.
At the end of that Passover meal, Jesus took the cup, the cup of wine, and he, he lifted it up and he said, this cup is my blood and it's poured out for you. It's the blood of the new covenant. Let's drink. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we think through the judgment that you meted out in the flood, help us to see that for what it is, a horrific moment in the history of the world. Lord God, we we shouldn't celebrate it. We should grieve over it. But Lord, as we think upon these things, we should not stop in hopelessness. You have provided a way of escape through your Son, through the cross. And all who call on your name and trust in you are saved. Lord, as we enter this season of Advent, of December, and and think about Christmas, and think about you, and think about your incarnation and coming as, as a baby, as a child. Let us also think about you as the offspring of Eve, the one to come to crush the head of the serpent and roll back the curse. Lord, as we sing this last song, let us sing in worship and adoration. I pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Vintage Faith Podcast. At Vintage Faith, our vision is to help people who are far from God to become totally devoted followers of Jesus. We pray that this podcast brought you closer to God. For more information, check us out at VintageFaithCicero.com.